Hello, and welcome to Carbon Neutral. I'm Emily Auerbach, and today we're celebrating the one-year anniversary of our show by looking at another anniversary. One year ago today, Donald Trump assumed the office of the presidency. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. In the 365 days that followed, the Trump administration has dominated the news cycle, with travel bans, incendiary comments about North Korea, attempted Obamacare repeals, and too many controversies to count. But beyond the headlines, how has our new administration conceived of environmental protection? And where do consistent rollbacks of Obama-era regulations leave the movement? It's carbon neutral, and today, we're tackling environmental regulation one year into Trump's presidency. I'll talk to local and global environmentalists who have witnessed the changes firsthand, and I'll also check in with everyday people to see how much of this environmental news has made its way into the public eye. Okay, I am heading out to do man-on-the-street interviews uh, one year into Trump's presidency. Holy mother, it's cold. Okay. Uh, hi, can I ask you a couple questions about the environment? Sure. Sure. Great. Slightly hungover, but okay. That's perfect. Uh, can you name any environmental policies that have changed in the past year? <laughs> I cannot. Ooh, um, I can't. Um, the Paris Accord? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, boo, but yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Trump just um, uh, um, there's a big national parks change, but I don't. Exactly. I don't actually know what the specifics of it are. Yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, yeah you nailed it. Okay, uh, how would you describe the Trump administration's approach to environmental regulation? I can talk all about the tax plan, <laughs> um, but I cannot talk about <laughs> environmental policy. Horrible. Horrible. <laughs> Not an area of focus. Okay. Um, so. I don't know much, but I do believe that Trump doesn't believe in global warming. Yeah. Horrible. <laughs> Very unsatisfactory. I'd probably say it's more of a probably anti-regulatory approach. So I think as far as I've heard, like in the EPA, they've been um, sort of rescinding a lot of regulations that were meant to protect the environment. Yeah. Can you introduce yourself? Absolutely. My name is Franz Hochstrasser. I'm pursuing a master's in environmental management at Yale University. Um, and before coming here... I worked in the Obama administration for eight years, most recently as a senior advisor at the State Department, um, and prior to that at the White House Council on Environmental Quality and at the Department of Agriculture. So sorry, that was a mouthful. <laughs> so you've been pretty bored. Not right. a whole lot going on. Um, great. So how would you describe the Trump administration's approach to environmental issues? Uh, well, I think in short, I would say that the Trump administration is essentially waging a war on health. And it's apparent across all sorts of issues, not just environmental issues. He's seeking to take health care away from 20 million Americans, slashing common sense protections on clean air and water, uh, rampantly disregarding the overwhelming judgment of science by denying climate change and suppressing scientists throughout the administration. Um, I think the way that he approaches environmental issues is similar, undermining public health um, and the protections that we rely on to safeguard that. Yeah. Uh, are there any actions in particular that have struck you as being particularly 
divergent to the sort of spirit of what animated your work at the Obama administration? Yeah, um, nearly all of them, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, he's, he's acted in a very deliberate way to basically undermine every advancement that we made, uh, particularly on environmental issues. Mm. But a couple that stand out to me, I think, are, you know, even his very own EPA found that uh, the Clean Power Plan could alone prevent around uh, 4,500 premature deaths per year by 2030. And yet he and his, his polluting Pruitt uh, EPA administrator are deciding to, ref, re, you know, ignore those deadly consequences and continue to pursue removing those standards uh, that we set in place under the Obama administration. And then additionally, you know, the, I think the, the budgets are very important. And, you know, by removing the financial backing that the agencies have to enforce environmental regulations, that's a that's another way of sort of weakening their ability to to protect us. Right. So a lot of the sort of day-to-day dismantling of regulations has been less visible. Um, but I was going around today and talking to sort of any random person who would stop on the street and talk to me. And several of them did know that we had withdrawn from the Paris Climate Accords. So I'm wondering, as one of the more visible parts of this rollback, if you could speak a little bit to why you saw the Obama administration putting so much effort behind those accords and what it means that we're now withdrawing. Yeah, well, that one's very dear to my heart because <laughs> I, I worked for two and a half years on, on that. The rationale that, that uh, he proposed or put forward actually in, in proposing to withdraw the U.S. from that because we actually are still in technically, mm. still technically in the Paris Agreement, uh, but the rationale was twofold, and I think both of them are pretty irrational. So, uh, But they, the ones he presented are that he wants the U.S. to have better terms, which is ridiculous because the agreement is structured in a way that each country sets their own nationally determined contribution. Mm. Um, so we set our own target of 26 to 28 percent reductions. And his second one is that you know the U.S. is paying its, uh, an unfair share of the amount of uh, global climate finance, uh, which again is is pretty preposterous because that's another thing where uh, we set our own budget and decide how much we put in. So the <laughs> the Paris Agreement uh, is is structured in a in a way where it's supposed to be durable and lasting, um, but it's also very ambitious and it's built on this process of iterating targets. And so it, it's ridiculous to claim that. You know, we, as a country, sort of shackled ourselves by by entering that. Yeah. So, I mean, the the Paris Agreement was one example where the U.S. was really taking on something of a role as global leader in shaping uh, the approach to combating climate change. What impact do you think that's going to have? Yeah, well, the the role that that we played actually in uh, crafting that agreement was really indispensable. It took 24 years of negotiations from the advent of uh, UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was agreed to by a Republican president, I would note, Hmm. George H.W. Bush back in 1992. And I think uh, one of my French colleagues, um, they they did an excellent job actually as as presidency as well, um, because they were chairing the negotiations at COP21. But one of my French colleagues said it best when, uh, I, I think after the adoption, when he came up to me and said, 
this really is an American agreement. <laughs> mm. um, so we, we got an excellent deal in that, as I think did did everyone, and, and really the sort of bottom-up approach that the Paris Agreement sets is a sort of a structure that was done by necessity, and not just because um, that was the kind of agreement that, that we wanted, but uh, because it works best for, for each country to decide how much they're they're putting forward. So, you know, to have us now in a position where we are the only country that uh, has indicated our intent to to remove ourselves from the agreement is pretty is pretty discouraging, um, not just to us Americans here that believe in climate change and and feel it's an important issue to address, but uh, more importantly, actually, also to the the global community that really look to us as a beacon of inspiration and of uh, leadership in cementing that agreement. Yeah. So obviously, the Paris Agreement was and is highly significant for global efforts to combat climate change. But there are other efforts going alongside that as well. Uh, And one of them is the Green Climate Fund. So the administration has started pushing back on this fund. I'd love if you could just summarize for us what that fund is, why it matters, and what what the U.S.'s role is in contributing to that fund. Sure, absolutely. So I think it's best on that question to start with the task at hand, which Mm. is really, and which I think, again, you know, the Paris Agreement sort of launched us down this path, but we we need to transition the economy from from high emitting sources to uh, a a low carbon uh, and climate resilient society. Um, And we need to do that within our lifetimes. You and I will see if we're successful on that or not. And that's going to take a lot of money, huge amounts to the order of uh, an estimated trillion dollars or more per year in expenditures being invested into climate solutions. And so the the Green Climate Fund actually came out of the Copenhagen agreements back in, in, in 2009. As part of the Copenhagen Accord, it launched an effort to mobilize $100 billion from developed countries to finance the transition um, and, and sending those those dollars toward developing countries um, that uh, were less able to, to finance their own transitions. And so the Green Climate Fund was intended to and is intended to grow into not that whole $100 billion per se, but at least um, the primary sort of global climate bank, mm. if you will. And the U.S. back in 2014 as well pledged to give $4 billion, I'm sorry, $3 billion over four years to that fund. In our time in office, we were able to, to get uh, $1 billion of that actually committed, the largest grant in the history of the State Department, actually. Wow. And so that was that was very meaningful and important, and, and the, the fund has now capitalized at over $10 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, with, with Trump's new posture of tending to pull us back from that, others are also getting wary of um, meeting their pledges. So it's it's a bit of a, a challenging situation now uh, to see where those those public dollars are going. But I will say that the private sector is unyielding. Um, you know, they they seem to be full bore gangbusters on financing all sorts of clean energy and and climate resilience projects. And I think that that will continue regardless of what the U.S. government does. 
Yeah, actually, that's a dynamic that we've seen a lot in the cocoa and chocolate industry, and one of the reasons that I decided to come pursue the joint degree. It's been really exciting to see the private sector stepping up in that way. So I'd love to ask you about something that might be a little bit off people's radars. Obviously, these are some of the big ticket items. Um, Is there anything that you, as an observer and someone who holds these issues close to your heart, have watched with pain over the last year as it's been rolled back. Yeah, so their rollbacks have come fast and furious, and we we mentioned the Clean Power Plan, which is a sort of big one, um, as is the Paris Agreement and Green Climate Fund. One very little-known rollback that I think is is actually perhaps, well, not quite as nefarious, but um, certainly very nefarious in and of itself, is the social cost of carbon. Mm. This is a sort of interstitial calculation that the Office of Management and Budget does and that they use, actually that the Obama administration um, started using and that this administration has basically recalculated to say that a ton of carbon now, as opposed to when President Obama was in office, um, is now less damaging to the environment. And so when they do cost-benefit analyses on rules, that new number shows up as a smaller amount. So that that enables them to, they, from their perspective, justify having less stringent environmental regulations, particularly on carbon emissions, as a result of that recalculation. So that's one that's really upsetting. Um, Some that are more sort of stick in the eye and, and worrisome are sort of outwardly are the, you know, opening up our, our continental shelf to, to drilling all across the, the country. And then, you know, the, the ones that really hurt a lot of the frontline communities like the Dakota Access Pipeline and, and Keystone XL, um, which were hard, hard won victories in the previous administration at Bristol Bay up in Alaska. Um, so those are, those ones are, are particularly galling too. Yeah. Uh, lot, lots of places to look if you're looking for opportunities to be disheartened. Um, Sadly. Unfortunately. Uh, from your perspective, how do you think that environmental advocacy has changed over the past year? And where do you think the movement needs to go from here to deal with sort of this new reality? Yeah, well, I'd say twofold. Uh, one is that there's a lot more litigation right now. So environmental lawyers have found themselves to be very busy as a result um, of the many rollbacks because they are subject to due process and, and the, the reviews that, that those, those litigators can pursue. Um, but the other, the other aspect, I think, is actually, in a weird way, a slightly sort of heartening component, which is the response to Trump's announcement that he intends to pull us out of the Paris Agreement. And that response was really resounding. The day after his agreement, um, there were, or after his announcement, there were already hundreds of organizations that had joined uh, a coalition, and it now totals uh, more than 2,800 states, cities, businesses, investors, universities, and faith groups that, and, and other organizations uh, that have said, actually, no, Trump, you know, doesn't matter what you say about this. We are still in the Paris Agreement. And, and we will continue to work to deliver on uh, the, the pledge that President Obama put forward. And that, that movement now uh, amounts to more than half of the U.S. population. Wow. So, so it's, it's pretty strong. And it, it also had a great representation at COP23 in Germany, 
uh, where many and ma- many of those individuals actually came, g- led by Governor Brown and Michael Bloomberg and others, and went to the global community and said, uh, "We're still in. You know, we're we pledge to do what we can to deliver on on the U.S. commitment." And that went a long way with the international community. Yeah. So, you know, always nice to finish on an upbeat note after talking about environmental issues. Um, One of the traditions on our show is that we finish every episode with what's giving us hope for the earth this week so that we walk away with a little bit of a spring in our step. So what is giving you hope for the earth this week? Nice. And this entire year? Well, I like that um, because hope through these these trying times dealing with climate change, environmental issues is, is vital to sort of keep faith alive. <laughs> hmm. um, and I think for, you know, for me, it, there's sort of a few things. So first and foremost is that every other country in the world is very committed at the national level hmm. um, to addressing climate change, to reducing their emissions, to meeting their Paris goals, and to ratcheting those up as time goes by to be more ambitious. So that's encouraging. And also at home, the vast majority of Americans are also committed. As I said, over half of uh, are represented by organizations that have signed on to one of these coalitions. But interestingly, even before Trump's announcement, more than half of the voters in every state in the U.S., all 50 states, wanted to stay in the agreement. And nationally, that level was about 69% of Americans wanting to, wanting to remain in the Paris Agreement. After Trump's announcement, it actually went up to wow. 77% uh, of Americans wanting that. So that's encouraging. And then, in addition, I think I find some hope in looking forward to the 2018 midterm elections uh, because it will be the first election in the U.S. where the number of millennial voters is larger than the number of baby boomer voters. Mm. Um, That still leaves the task of registering all of them and then turning them out to the polls. But um, it's a task that I think is one that can be accomplished and you know, with concerted activism should and will be accomplished so that we can turn the tide politically on uh, a lot of the, the frustrating aspects of what the federal government is, is doing right now. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and the Carbon Neutral audience. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much. You know what's a great way to feel creepy? Asking strangers how they feel about politics. Okay, this is great. Can you think of any like preferred energy sources from the Trump administration? Trump administration. Yeah, like what? Coal would be his argument because he says yeah. it's important for economic development. Yeah, yes, oil drilling. Yeah. Ha! Yeah. Uh, oil and gas. Maybe fracking oil. <laughs> That's what I'm guessing. Oil. I would have to guess. Okay. I would assume probably coal. Any any other thoughts that you want to share with the good people of America? This is not an area of expertise. So <laughs> probably not. Cool. That's perfect. Thank you so much. No problem. Okay. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Werner Wilson III. I am a Yale MEM graduate, class of 2015, and I am currently the senior oceans campaigner for Friends of the Earth.
talk to me a little bit about what got you interested in environmental activism and your background. So I got interested in environmental uh, issues because my family uh, became sick after the military polluted uh, my mom's home island, St. Lawrence Island, which is between Russia and Alaska. And my relatives really depend on our subsistence way of life and a healthy environment to feed our families. And so after learning about that issue, I joined Alaska Youth for Environmental Action. Awesome. Uh, well, congratulations on your role with Friends of the Earth. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your experience in Alaska. So this year in particular, Alaska has been the subject of increased national attention as the administration has reviewed or rolled back several critical policies. Can you describe those changes and how they're impacting your friends and family back home? The proposed pebble mine is probably the largest uh, single issue for the people in Bristol Bay, the communities. Uh, we provide about half the world's wild sockeye salmon. And unfortunately, the EPA, after the Obama EPA, uh, previously studied the issue for three years and underwent this very public process where they took comments from millions of people across the country. And so after that, they proposed uh, protections. But unfortunately, uh, Trump and uh, Scott Pruitt decided to uh, shelve all of that hard work and uh, cut a backroom deal with uh, the mining company behind Pebble Mine. And that's just very unfortunate because, uh, you know, so many people from Bristol Bay and Alaska expressed their opposition to Pebble Mine. They supported EPA's protections, but, uh, you know, less than uh, a few hours after this meeting between the mining company and uh, Scott Pruitt, they decided to withdraw those protections, start the process of withdrawing them. Uh, so it sounds like the Bristol Bay fishery has really been impacted by these changing regulations. What about um, Arctic and oceanic issues in general. I know that offshore drilling has been a big point of contention this year. Yeah, I'm one of the ocean campaigners for Friends of the Earth. And um, just looking at what's on the table right now, Bristol Bay, uh, my Hope region, was pretty much the only place that was spared uh, in, uh, off the waters of Alaska. But other places around Alaska, including Southeast, Kodiak, the Aleutians, and the Arctic the Bering Strait that are so important uh, for marine mammals and indigenous people's way of life, they are all um, under consideration. And so, you know, I'm going to be making sure that we provide good, tough comments and uh, we're present uh, at all the hearings. These waters are so important, not just for local communities, but people, I would argue, from around the U.S. Yeah. This is... Uh, Alaska is uh, some of the richest fishing grounds, and we've seen disasters like the one in the Gulf of Mexico and Exxon, and we've seen how those could de devastate fisheries. So I'm looking forward to challenging and taking on the Trump administration in my new capacity. How, if at all, has this past year felt different from your engagement with environmental activism in the past? This year, I feel... Like at every level of government, at the federal level especially, um, that there are a lot of different assaults. And it's not just related to specific issues like offshore drilling or pebble mine, but, you know, 
in my previous uh, work, I've seen how the Trump administration is politicizing providing grants to local communities and tribes on basic environmental work. Um, there are just so many examples where you see even uh, funding cuts uh, to EPA, to Department of Interior, to other agencies that are so important uh, to the environment. And that's just, I think that that's a, a very telling sign of the extreme agenda that that Trump, Pruitt, EPA, what they're trying to get through uh, in terms of our clean air and clean water. What can concerned individuals do uh, that are seeing either their local communities or communities that they care about be impacted by these rollbacks? So be as involved as you can. I would say, you know, join groups like Friends of the Earth, uh, we see this president and his administration's assault on our environment. We need to make sure that we are there every step of the way to to fight back and to be informed and to make sure that our voice is heard. Because without that, uh, then we'll just see environmental degradation and risks continue to rise. So um, join groups, be involved. Uh, I would say, you know, donate where you can because uh, we really take this seriously and we want to make sure that um, we're at the table too. Okay, and last question. It's a tradition on our show that we close every episode with something that's giving you hope for the earth this week. So what is giving you hope for the earth in 2018? What gives me hope is people at the local and state level, they're not just standing up to Trump, but they're also taking the initiatives to uh, fight things like climate change. I know that state houses are suing the Trump administration. I know that they're coming up with their own plans to uh, regulate carbon. Um, right here in Washington state, there's a proposal for a carbon tax, which I totally believe in. And, and I think that uh, what gives me hope is people are uh, willing to do that. And, uh, they are supporting initiatives that will make sure that it's not just us benefiting, but uh, the children uh, of the future. And that's what it really comes down to. Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me today. And thanks for all the work you're doing up there in Washington. Thank you. In the first six months of George W. Bush's administration, the EPA took actions that are estimated to have prevented 618 premature deaths. The same figure under this administration is 22. In addition to the issues Franz and Werner highlighted, this administration has unfrozen cold leases on public lands, removed a host of species from endangered and protected species lists, removed climate change from the State Department's list of national security threats, withdrawn guidance for federal agencies to include greenhouse gas emissions in environmental impact assessments, and loosened sewage treatment pollution regulations. And that's just the beginning. So as environmentalists, what can we take away from Trump's first year in office? I'm honestly not sure where we go from here. Personally speaking, it's been a discouraging, electrifying, heart-wrenching, fast-paced mess of a year for me. I made some big changes, like quitting my job and starting grad school, and some small ones, like helping a housemate start a compost pile. Our government's been making changes too, and looking back on 2017, it's not hard to imagine that there will be more to come in 2018. So as we move into the second year of this administration, my watchword isn't sustainability, or 
even resistance, it's resilience. So